Well, Merry Christmas. Andy Williams once sang about the Christmas season that this is the most wonderful time of the year. And yet, maybe it's just me, but I think this Christmas may seem like a little bit of a letdown. Because in a lot of ways, it feels more like Christmas 2020 than we would like. The economy isn't in great shape. The headlines are still dominated by the coronavirus. Our society remains as polarized and unpleasant as ever. And for me, that's a big disappointment. All year, I was like, I got to get to Christmas. It's going to be just wonderful time. Things are going to be different. All the bad news will be gone. You know, probably really unrealistic expectations. But that's where I was at. And, and right now, it doesn't seem to be the case. As we come to the end of this year and as our society continues to struggle with all of these issues, how should the people of God face the uncertainty and the anxiety of our times? That's the question we're going to take on this morning as we continue our study in the prophecies that we find in the opening chapters of the book of Isaiah that speak of the birth of Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be looking at the second half of Isaiah chapter 8 and the first half of Isaiah chapter 9. And in this passage, we're going to learn how God's people should handle living in anxious and uncertain times. And we're going to learn this by seeing what God had to say to his prophet Isaiah 2,750 years ago. Because Isaiah then was living in a time that was a lot like the time we're living in today. And as we look at what God had to say to Isaiah, we're going to look at three questions this morning about how we should approach living in uncertain times. And the questions are these. Number one, who do we fear in times of uncertainty? Number two, whose voice do we seek in seasons of uncertainty? And number three, where can we find stability in times of uncertainty? So let's start with our first point. Who do we fear in times of uncertainty? If you've got a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. And as you're turning there, let me set the stage a little bit. We pick up right where we left off last week. It's the year 725 B.C. We're in the nation of Judah and the capital city of Jerusalem. And the people are in a panic they're panicking because a powerful alliance of two nations has begun to invade their country. And these invaders say they're going to destroy Judah's independence. They're going to destroy the royal house of David. And they're going to put a puppet king on David's throne. That's some bad news, right? Foreign invasion. But it gets worse. The invaders are winning the war. They've won every battle in the conflict. And now they're going to besiege Jerusalem. The next several months look like they're going to be pretty lousy for the folks who live there. That's even worse news. But it gets even worse yet. We saw last week that God sent the prophet Isaiah to speak to the king of Judah, a wicked man named Ahaz. And Isaiah urged Ahaz to repent of his sins and to trust God. And God said to Ahaz, if you trust me, I will make you stable. I will give you victory in this war. And in fact, you might remember God said to Ahaz, I'll perform any miracle you want to help you have some faith. But Ahaz rejected God's offer. Because Ahaz had a plan that he thought was better than trusting God. He was going to send a bribe to the most powerful man on earth, the king of Assyria. And say, King of Assyria, come defeat my enemies for me. 
Now, this faithless political plan earns God's immediate judgment. God says to Ahaz, your plan's going to backfire. Yes, Assyria will destroy your enemies, but then they're going to betray you. They're going to come at you. Their soldiers are going to flood your nation. They will pillage, destroy, and enslave most of the Jews, leaving the country a wasteland overrun by wild animals and plants. Now that is some terrible news. And Isaiah gave this news to Ahaz. And more than that, he gave it to the common people of Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 1, you might remember Isaiah put up the ancient equivalent of a billboard and wrote a summary of his message on it so the common people could see it. And Isaiah says, bad times are coming. And that's where we pick up today, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. What's going on here? Well, the people of Jerusalem are overwhelmed by the bad news of their day, and they respond to it with fear. And that's a pretty common response to bad news, right? People panic. We've seen this in our own society over the last 20 years, right? When we first see that things may head in a bad direction, what do people do? Number one, everybody runs out and buys guns. They go buy a bunch of gold. Companies offering survival gear and long-term food supplies make a lot of money. And there might even be a run on toilet paper, right? Because what people in our society want is comfort and security. Those are our gods. We want to guard our lives and we want to guard our stuff because what people in our society value most of all is materialism. We want to secure ourselves and our stash. And when we sense that our lives or our stuff is jeopardized, we respond with fear. And sometimes that fear manifests itself in a really specific way. People start muttering about those who are in power. Can we really trust them? Who are they serving, really? Uh, paranoia begins to develop in society. People start looking for someone to blame for the real reason that we're having these bad circumstances. And conspiracy theories start to flourish. Things are only this bad because there are secret elites who have an agreement to betray us. We see this in our own culture, right? We live in a time filled with conspiracy theories. There are pandemic conspiracy theories and election conspiracy theories and QAnon and fake news. And that's just the last three years. Before then, there was 9-11 trutherism. There were conspiracies about Trump, 
about Obama, about the Bushes, about the Clintons, about Ronald Reagan. You know, each of his names had six letters. That must mean he's the mark of the beast or he's the Antichrist. There were conspiracy theories about the Illuminati. There were conspiracy theories about the moon landing. There were conspiracy theories about the JFK assassination. For decades, our society has gravitated to this kind of thing, right? And not our society only. In the 1910s, Germany was shocked when they suddenly lost World War I. And in the 1930s, when they suffered a sudden economic collapse, what happened? There was an environment in which a lot of people suddenly believed a conspiracy theory that, wow, we've been backstabbed by the Jews. And this led to the rise of Hitler. And even before the 20th century in the West, there were conspiracy theories. We find out in these verses, there were conspiracy theories even back in Isaiah's day. Because believing conspiracy theories is a common way that people who are angry that their lives have been radically disrupted by bad circumstances and who feel otherwise powerless gain a sense of comfort and control in the middle of bad times. Now, we don't know what these conspiracy theories were that Isaiah is talking about here, but I think we can guess what they sounded like. Did you hear we lost that battle the other day? Our soldiers could never lose a battle like that. Our generals must have sold them out. Maybe King Ahaz sold them out. Did you hear what Isaiah said to the king the other day? Could a real prophet of God talk like that? Isaiah must be on the payroll of a foreign nation. Or some similar nonsense, right? Judas filled with people talking about conspiracies. And one thing that's interesting about conspiracies is that they both come from a climate of fear and they produce more fear. Nobody has yet come up with a conspiracy theory that says everything is wonderful and all of our politicians are doing a great job, right? Conspiracy theories come from living in scary times, and when you believe them, it makes you more scared. Because you're more afraid now of who's really pulling the strings. Even if you, you believe that, that some of these conspiracy theories may be true, which I would tell you the vast majority of them are not. You, who's really in control? You start to fear them. Instead of fearing the God who is over everything. And so Judah, 2,700 years ago, it's a lot like America today. People are muttering about conspiracies, and there's more fear, and there's more uncertainty. And in this context, God intervenes in Isaiah's life. God's strong hand, we're told, comes upon Isaiah. The idea is Isaiah experiences a powerful awareness of God's presence. And in this moment, God speaks to Isaiah, and what does God tell his prophet? Do not walk in the way of this people. Isaiah is not to respond to what's going on in society the same way everybody else is. God's people are to respond to crisis and uncertainty differently than everybody else. How? Well, first, God tells Isaiah not to call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. God doesn't want Isaiah or any of God's people getting caught up in conspiracy theory world. It's not holy, it's not sanctifying, it's worldly, and it becomes like addicting, right? You get into this, oh, I want to know more, I want to learn more. Stay away from it, God says. Second, God, Isaiah God tells Isaiah, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. God doesn't want Isaiah getting caught up in the national mood of fear and paranoia either. Why not? 
Is it because the things that were worrying the Jews back then were fake? No. There was a real invasion. The invaders were really dangerous. The danger was real. In fact, Isaiah had just prophesied that the danger was certain. Death and poverty were coming to Judah. God had decreed it. But what God wants Isaiah to do is to look past that terrible news, to not let it paralyze him in fear and despair. And instead, God wants Isaiah to put his mind on something else. Not on fearing the awfulness of his circumstances, but on fearing the Lord. God wants Isaiah to focus on living in a way that honors God, that exalts God. And yes, the text even says that dreads God. Now that language of fearing God may catch us off guard. Because many people today have a low view of God. God is our understanding buddy. Or God is our enabling psychotherapist. Or God is our genie or some Santa Claus type figure who exists to only give us what we want. But friends, that is not who God is. And Isaiah knew that. He knew that in a really unique way. Because remember back in chapter 6, God let Isaiah see a glimpse of his true glory. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah has had a glimpse at the reality of who God is. And what he has seen is that God is awe-inspiring. God is exalted. God is almighty and glorious. He is revered by mighty supernatural beings who devote their entire existence unceasingly forever to proclaiming his utter holiness and glory, his righteousness and majesty. This God... His presence makes the very earth shake when his robe but grazes the ground. And in the presence of this awesome God, what was Isaiah's response? It was fear, wasn't it? Woe is me! Because he has seen who God really is. This is the awesome, the almighty Yahweh. This is a God who is not to be trifled with who is sovereign and supreme, who is to be revered, honored, and obeyed in every aspect of life. And woe to those who will not pay this God the homage that he is due. So while dangerous times may cause the world to react to fear because of our materialistic concerns, God here reveals there's a much more pressing issue, which is this. Where do you and I stand with this God? Because the truth is, friends, we all must face him. That's what Isaiah gets at in verse 14. He says, those who trust in the Lord will find that God is their great helper and protection in the day of trouble. God will be their sanctuary. Now, this is not a guarantee that our lives will avoid danger or difficulty. Rather, this is a promise to hold on to in the middle of times of danger and difficulty. That no matter how bad things may get, the person who trusts in the Lord is in the most secure position imaginable. He's more secure than the president surrounded by the Secret Service. He's more secure than all the gold at Fort Knox. Because Almighty God has sworn to give His people eternal life. And friends, our God 
is so sovereign and authoritative. He is more powerful than every nuclear weapon. He is more in control over the affairs of this world than every conspiracy and every politician put together. And all of the power of this world is like a speck of dust before him. He is Lord over life and death, and he is looking at each one of us today saying, what are you going to do with me? And so in times of uncertainty and anxiety, friends, is our concern primarily how are we going to keep hold of our stuff? Are we trying to clutch what we can't take with us? Or is our primary concern living in a way that honors this majestic and glorious God? And friends, if we choose to prioritize the things of this world over the Lord, we're going to have a rude awakening. Because you cannot avoid God. You cannot bribe God. You cannot ignore God. You will give an account to God, and so will I. And those who will not honor God will be taken down by him. That's what the text says. He will be a trap and a snare to them. They will fall and be broken. In Isaiah's generation, what this meant is if you refuse to trust the Lord, you're the one that's going to be taken into slavery and exile by Assyria. A few hundred years later, Jesus would make a similar point, but he tells us there's an even more disastrous result for those who will not honor God. Something worse than exile and slavery. This is the word of Christ. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so, friends, we see here there are two paths. There is the world's path, which in hard times is fearful because it's all about self and stuff, and it leads to destruction. And there is the Lord's path, focusing on honoring and loving Him in the way we live, which leads to true joy and peace and confidence in times of uncertainty. Now, this leads to our second question, which is this. Whose voice do we seek in times of uncertainty? Look at verse 16. Isaiah says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? Uncertainty about life leads people to seek two things. Answers and control. We want to know why are bad things happening to me and how can I regain the illusion that I am in control over my life? And so people start scrambling for answers and coping strategies when hard times come. What's the safest investment for my money? What's the best gun to have? What's the best vaccine to get? Now, make no mistake, there's nothing wrong with asking any of these questions. But what happens is that people often treat the answers to these questions as some sort of ultimate guarantee of our security. When in fact, our security's got to be in the Lord above the things of this world. Now, Isaiah asks his hearers, where are you going to turn? When hard times come, where are you going to look for answers and security? And again, there are two paths. Number one, in Isaiah's time, people were turning to popular forms of spirituality to get answers. 
They went to necromancers and magicians who would perform ceremonies and make weird chirping noises and pretend to talk to the dead. And people went to, to this nonsense because they thought this would give them supernatural insight into their problems and it would give them supernatural control over their lives. Now this may seem like a weird thing to us today, maybe a harmless thing to us today, but friends, I've got to tell you, God doesn't view it like that at all. In fact, several times in the Old Testament law, God says, dabbling in the occult merits the death penalty. Why? Why is this so problematic? Because not every spiritual message comes from the Lord. Because there are deceitful, demonic spirits that use occult practices to mislead people into false paths that lead to destruction. And this same sort of thing still happens today. The form may be different. We may not go to a chirping necromancer. But you know, lots of people call the psychic friends hotline or whatever the equivalent is today. They're interested in having a seance with a medium. Did you know tons of young people today are really interested in their horoscopes again? And astrology? And down from our house, there's a psychic who has a little shack, and in front of that shack is parked a Corvette and a brand new Beamer and some other sports cars because she makes a ton of money doing crystal ball readings and tarot cards. Friends, there is still a market for this kind of junk. But maybe today, the voices we listen to aren't the voices of a psychic. Maybe we don't turn to the occult. Maybe instead the voices we chase after are the voices of politicians or TV news personalities or commentators or so-called experts who are all over Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. People who tell us if we just listen to them, if we just elect them, if we just enact their policies, everything's going to get radically better. Maybe we turn to financial experts. If you just invest in this stock, you're going to be financially secure. Or maybe we seek hope from televangelists who tell us we are going to get health and wealth if we just send them a lot of money. Or we pick up a book that's allegedly a Christian book that says, here's a new word from Jesus for you, even though that word isn't found anywhere in the Bible. Or we listen to Oprah's next very special guest or whatever. But it's very easy to wind up following the path of the world and chasing all of these voices out there who claim to know what our real problems are and who promise to give us control again. But Isaiah says there's another path. And this is the path that the people of God should be on. It's not the path of the world. It's not the path of talking heads and psychics and social media. Instead, Isaiah says, when uncertain times come, should not a people inquire of their God? Friends, who is sovereign over everything? Who is sovereign over the laws of planetary motion? Who is sovereign over the lifespan of every mosquito that has ever lived? Who knows the beginning from the end? Who has ultimate power over life and death? Is it not the Lord? When we're looking for answers to the difficulties of this life, should we not hear what he has to say? Now, in Isaiah's day, people could hear from God in two ways. First, they had God's written word, which Isaiah here calls the teaching and the testimony. And second, God communicated with Israel through his prophets. Sometimes God sent his prophets a message that they were to preach verbally, and sometimes God used his prophets to act out or in some way visually demonstrate what he wanted Israel to receive. 
And in verse 18, Isaiah mentions a way that God has used him to communicate with the people of Judah. God used Isaiah's children as prophetic signs to speak to the nation and warn about what was coming. Last week we saw that Isaiah had two sons, and both of their names were prophetically significant. They spoke about the judgment that was soon coming upon Judah, and the fact that God would spare a believing remnant from that judgment. And what Isaiah here says to his audience is this, Why are you chasing after false messages from demons by participating in the occult? Why don't you listen to what God has said in his word? Why don't you listen to the prophecies that God has given to you, either verbally through me or even by the signs of my children? When God's people want answers, we need to first and foremost consult what the Lord has said. Now, in our day and age, I don't see any evidence that God's speaking new words through prophets, but we have God's written word. In fact, we've got a lot more of it than they did in Isaiah's time. And so, friends, if we are God's people, the primary place we need to go for answers in tough times is to God's written word. We need to hear what God has to say. We also need to return to the teaching and the testimony of the Old Testament and the New Testament in our Bibles. Like James chapter 1 says, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. We want to listen, believe, and obey what God says. Because the Bible is the one reliable source we have for the information we need from God about how to navigate this life. That's not to say we can't listen to other voices about other things. But friends, first and foremost, we need to hear what God has to say. And this is what Isaiah is getting at in verses 16 and 17. He says he wants to seal up his testimony and teaching. He gives it to the disciples that he had. He had some disciples. And he gave it to them to preserve his writings for future generations. And more than that, on the basis of what God has said to Isaiah, Isaiah and his disciples want to live in line with what God has revealed to them. And that's what we need to do too, friends. We don't want to chase the voices that this world loves. Voices that can't really explain why bad things happen. And despite their claims, can't really give us any sense of control over our lives. Instead, friends, we need to turn to the Bible. Because the Bible tells us why bad things happen in this world. Because humanity plunged this good world into ruin through our sin. And we need to learn that instead of trying to gain control over our lives, what we really need to do is trust the Lord, who's actually in control. And when we find ourselves in the middle of uncertainty and hardship, we are to wait on the Lord and trust the actions that God takes in his own good time. Because, friends, God is always at work in everything that happens. And God has sworn that he will work out everything for the ultimate good of those who love him. And based on that truth, we can patiently endure hardship. And as we wait on him, we hope in him. James writes... Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Friends, the time is coming when all things will be set right and when evil will be vanquished. Wait for it and be confident in the Lord. And so again, we see two paths. The path followed by the world, seeking control, searching for answers in all the wrong places, and the path of the Lord, listening to his word, trusting patiently in him and waiting for him to set everything right. Now, this brings us to our final question, which is where can we find stability in times of uncertainty? The path of this world is a path of fear, materialism, and chasing the wrong voices. And where does it lead? Look at verse 20. Isaiah says, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. 
They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against the king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. God says to Isaiah's audience, if you don't like what I'm saying, if you won't listen to my word, if you want the false voices, if you care more about your stuff than honoring me, this is what's going to happen. You will go into exile. You will go to slavery. You will starve. You will become bitter against God and man. And today, friends, if we do this same thing here and now, we're going to wind up in a similarly miserable condition. Materialism will only disappoint us because money is fleeting and you can't take it with you. The life that chases materialism, the life that's governed by false voices, will only lead you to disappointment and ruin. There's no dawn in it, Isaiah says. You know, I know a lot of, of really rich people. And I've got to tell you, most of them rank among the most unhappy and disappointed, miserable folks that I know. Because the glories of this world aren't all they're cracked up to be. And friends, if that's what we're going to put our hope in, that which is transitory and passing away, we're going to wind up sorely disappointed and bitter, and we're going to look at our lives and say we really have no meaning in our lives. Because the things of this world are going to flutter away. Our health is going to flutter away. Our money is going to flutter away. And in the end, if that's your life, you're just going to become really bitter. And then after this life, it's going to get a lot worse. The book of Hebrews tells us after death comes a judgment. And if you spent your life worshiping the things of this world instead of the living God, you can expect more gloom and darkness. The gloom and darkness of everlasting judgment and separation from God who is the source of all hope and light and joy. Friends, the world's path is indeed a path of ruin. It may seem alluring to us, but remember what the Proverbs say. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. Instead, friends, if we want the wise path to navigate uncertain times, we've got to get off the world's road and find the narrow road that leads to life. And this is the road that Isaiah describes in the first seven verses of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Disobedient Judah, who walked after this false wisdom, is going into the gloom of exile. But friends, the ultimate purpose of God is not judgment, it's mercy. And the Lord promises that the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, which is the region of northern Israel that would suffer the most during all these wars that were happening then, one day that region would experience a tremendous reversal of fortunes. The area that in Isaiah's day was consumed with gloom and fear would someday experience great glory. And we're going to see how that happened in just a minute. But before we see the fulfillment of this prophecy, let's keep reading. As God now promises to do three things. Verse 2, God says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So what's that mean? These verses tell us that God's going to do three things. First, he is going to shine a light on people who have been living in darkness. He is going to reverse the miserable situation that these people are in. The Israelites have been languishing in sin and misery under God's judgment, but a time is coming when God will intervene and show them brightness and joy, when he will offer them hope. Second, God says here he is going to end the slavery of his people. God has told Judah they will soon go into exile and slavery because of their sin, but that slavery will not last forever. God promises that one day he will end the burdens and the beatings that characterize the slavery that they're about to experience. And third, God says here, he is going to give his people victory. This time, there's so much warfare plaguing the nation of Judah. Isaiah says, well, right now they're facing invasion from two countries. Isaiah says they're about to be invaded by an even stronger country. Suffering and defeat is near. But suffering and defeat is not the final story for the people of God. God will give his people victory. Not just in this war or in that war. God will give his people perpetual victory and peace by one day ending every war. And so the miseries and uncertainty that characterized Isaiah's day will not last forever. This is not the final word that God will write over his people. And indeed, friends, misery and uncertainty is not the final word God means to write over our lives either. Today, we may have very valid reasons for anxiety or concern, but I got to tell you these reasons won't last forever. And even more important than our worries about the economy or the virus or the direction of our country, friends, we need to know the most important matter before us is will we bow the knee to Jesus Christ? Because if we don't, we are in a much worse predicament than any of these things can put us in. If we have never come to Christ, we, like the people that are described in these verses, are living in great darkness. We are lost and dead in our sins. We are unable to establish a relationship with God on our own. We are under God's righteous wrath because of our sin, because we've done what God has forbidden, and because we failed to do what God has commanded us to do. We are all born in darkness under God's judgment. We are all born as slaves of sin, just as we see slavery in this passage. Because we always chase what looks good and what feels good and what makes us feel important. And as we indulge in these things, we heap up more and more wrath upon ourselves. We were God's enemies, friends. Ephesians 2 says, we were once following the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan. We were serving the spiritual enemies of God. But just as God promised a better future for the people of Isaiah's day, who were in darkness and headed for slavery and worried about their enemies. God offers us a better future today too. He offers to bring us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. He offers to set us free from slavery to sin and give us newness of life. He offers to liberate us from the power of Satan and his demons. And in fact, he promises that one day he will vanquish them. God can deliver you, friend, no matter how lost your cause may seem. That's what the reference to Midian in verse 4 is all about. In the Old Testament, Israel fought a battle with the Midianites. And Israel was terribly outnumbered. But God gave them victory. Because when God fights for you, it doesn't matter how hard your hardship is. It doesn't matter how many enemies line up against you. If God is with you, you cannot lose. And God promises to fight for and deliver his people here. Just as he offers to fight for and deliver you and me today. 
But how will God accomplish this rescue? How does God bring light to the darkness? How does God set the captives free? How does God vanquish his and our spiritual adversaries? Well, the final verses of this passage tell us, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God will accomplish all of his good purposes in this world, he tells Isaiah, through the birth of a child. And this child will bring light where there is darkness. And he will set the captives free. And he will defeat the enemies of God. How will a child do this? Well, because he's going to grow up. And one day he's going to be a significant figure in the realm of government. Now remember, this prophecy is given at a time when the future of the house of David seems uncertain. When the people of Jerusalem think their leaders are going to be overthrown. And in that time there were all these conspiracy theories and the world of politics was filled with gloominess and darkness just like it is today. But God says he's going to send a child who one day will take up the burdens of government. Who will in fact become a king. A king unlike wicked King Ahaz who reigned in Isaiah's day. A king unlike even good King Uzziah, who reigned just a few years earlier. A king unlike every political official or ruler or president throughout history. Because this child will rule in absolute moral righteousness. And he is going to usher in the most effective, the most virtuous, the most righteous government there has ever been. Now Isaiah gives us four titles that speak more about who this child is going to be. First, we're told he is the wonderful counselor. You know, we often throw the word wonderful around to talk about things we like. But in Hebrew, this word usually speaks of the miraculous. And this word counselor usually speaks of a political leader or one who gives guidance. And so what we're told here is this child is someday going to become a governing official who will give counsel and leadership that will be miraculously wise. You know, the king in Isaiah's day was a fool. He trusted Assyria more than God. Now, most of our leaders today aren't much better, whether they're in D.C. or Austin, right? But friends, Isaiah says a time is coming when a king will sit on the throne and he will be the wisest there will ever be, who is all-knowing and perfect in his plans, who will bring about not just efficient government. Any tyrant can do that. He will bring about good government without corruption or incompetence or evil. Friends, that indeed is a miraculous leader. Second, he is the mighty God. The child who will be born is nothing less than God himself. One who truly possesses both the divine nature who also take on the human nature. It's an amazing notion. Especially when you remember Isaiah's vision of God as this glorious and exalted and transcendent being whose presence shakes the earth and the temple. How can that God become a fragile baby? It's a mystery. But Isaiah says he's coming as a child, and he will become a man. And as a man, he will accomplish all of God's good purposes. But Isaiah's point here is the Almighty One is going to take on flesh. He will take on humanity. Third, Isaiah says he is the everlasting Father. 
Now, this may confuse us if we've studied the doctrine of the Trinity, which tells us there's one God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while the Father and Son are both God, while they both share one divine nature, they are distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. And yet, here Isaiah says that this child is the everlasting Father. What are we to make of this? Well, remember last week we talked about the doctrine of progressive revelation. God reveals things across history slowly. And at this point in history, God has not yet fully revealed the doctrine of the Trinity. The New Testament would later more fully reveal that the Father and the Son have these distinctions in person. But what Isaiah is doing here is he's not making a comment about the doctrine of the Trinity. Instead, he's restating this amazing idea he just talked about. This child is the everlasting God. And God will act as a father to his people, sometimes disciplining them, sometimes rewarding them. He gives us good gifts. He acts in our defense. He is motivated by endless love, and he has an eternal relationship with those who belong to him. And finally, Isaiah tells us this child is the prince of peace. The Bible tells us that God is a warrior. But this child, God incarnate, will be the last warrior. Because by his conquest, he will bring all of the wars of this world to an end. He will usher in perpetual peace. And friends, he is coming. And when he comes, he's not going to be on a ballot every four or eight years. He is coming. He will subdue everything under his feet. And he will rule forever. And he is going to rule from David's throne. The invasion that so terrified everyone in Isaiah's day will fail. The house of David will not be destroyed. The child whom God will send, who will himself be God, will descend in a human sense from the Davidic dynasty. He will reign as king from the throne of David, and his reign will have no end. And this is how God's ancient promise to David will be fulfilled. And God said to David, your house will endure forever. Here's how. Because in the end, the house of David will culminate in a king who will live forever and reign forever. And that king is this child. A king whose rule will have no flaws. No more scheming, no more politics, no more crisis, no more conspiracy. His power shall have no limits, and his reign shall know no end forever and ever. And Isaiah finishes this prophecy with a guarantee. The God-man is coming to reign, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do it. God's fervent love and his fervent desire for his people's holiness guarantees this king is coming. Now, I said earlier this prophecy was given in 725 B.C. And this explains why Isaiah had to tell his audience to be patient. Because God doesn't work on our timetable. Our lives do not contain a guarantee that we will see all of the prophetic promises come to pass. Isaiah's generation didn't see this prophecy entirely come to pass. Neither did many other generations for over seven centuries. Now, during those centuries, many of the other things God said would happen in these chapters occurred. The enemies of Judah were destroyed. Assyria betrayed and invaded Judah until God miraculously delivered Jerusalem at the last minute. God sent the Jews into exile, and he brought them back. But 720-some years later, in Bethlehem, in the city of David, where Isaiah's contemporary Micah said it would happen, eventually David's descendant and rightful heir was born as a baby in a manger as Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. And Jesus grew up, and he lived a perfect, sinless life as God in the flesh. 
And Jesus showed that he possessed the wisdom and the love and the might of God and his teaching and his compassion and his miracles. And do you know where he did all of this first? In Galilee, in the same place that Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 said it would happen. God said the place that was characterized by great darkness in Isaiah's day would one day be a place where the light would brightly shine forth. And this is where Jesus first conducted his ministry and revealed himself to be God in the flesh. In fact, Matthew chapter 4 explicitly makes this connection. And yet while Jesus revealed his deity through his ministry, Jesus did not take the throne of David in his lifetime. Instead, he was rejected by his people. He was afflicted, brutalized, tortured, and killed. Now, that might surprise you. That may not sound like what Isaiah says here in chapter 9. But it is what Isaiah prophesies in chapter 53. This child, whom Isaiah talks about in his early chapters, the one whom he variously calls Emmanuel, or the branch, or the holy seed, the one whom we will see next week is described as a, sh a shoot from the stump of Jesse. He is also the one that Isaiah 53 says, grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And this is what Isaiah 53 says will happen to this king. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The God-man, the promised King Jesus came to this world and became the suffering servant all in fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. And Jesus said this is why he had come. He said, I come to give my life a ransom for many. And he did. He died a death of agony on the cross for your sins and mine. And what did that death accomplish? Well, the Bible tells us Jesus' death has brought light into the darkness. 2 Corinthians 4 says, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has brought us freedom to liberate us from our slavery to sin. Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Jesus says in John 8 about slavery to sin, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And Jesus has brought his people victory and deliverance over our adversaries who desire our destruction. Colossians 2 says at the cross, God has disarmed the rulers and authorities, the demonic realm, and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. Christ has brought peace between God and man. He has brought peace between man and man. Ephesians 2 says that Jesus has reconciled Jew and Gentile in one body through the cross, killing their historic hostility. Jesus brings the peace, light, victory, and liberty that this prophecy about the child says he would bring. And he does it through his work at the cross. Jesus fulfills this promise. Jesus is the one we must trust. And Jesus said what the right response to him was in his very first sermon. He says, repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from the way of this world and turn to Christ. Trust yourself because Jesus is the God-man. Jesus has died for your sin. And Jesus is risen because death was not powerful enough to keep this glorious king in the tomb. Friends, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and believe. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth, 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will receive eternal life and light and freedom and peace. Friends, Jesus is the answer to the brokenness of this world. Jesus fulfills this prophecy. And when everything seems like it's falling apart, or even when things just seem like they're not getting any better, don't regard your stuff or even your life as being of ultimate importance. Instead, fear the Lord and trust him. Listen to his word. Don't get bogged down in conspiracy theories or talking heads or whatever. Run to God's word when things get tough. And discover again what God's provision is for the hardest times. It's Jesus. God gave his son to die for us. And God gave his son because his son will one day set all things right. And Jesus came the first time as a baby. He is coming again. And he is coming as a triumphant warrior. And he will take possession of what, what is rightfully his. And he will sit on a throne. And he will govern in righteousness and justice and wisdom. And he will end all sin and war and wickedness. And his people will have perpetual peace under the Prince of Peace as Jesus reigns forever. And so may we find wonder and joy in Jesus this Christmas season. May we celebrate him as we should if we are his redeemed people. And may we put our trust in him because he is God's answer to the madness and the uncertainty of this world.